Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Monday, February 26th, and today's episode is brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies. As the leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers, Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com slash defense. A couple of uh, public service announcements. Uh, since our last episode, we were in San Diego for our annual West Conference, the 13th through the 15th of February. It was a huge success. It was the biggest West ever with nearly 10,000 attendees and a record number of exhibitors. The Secretary of the Navy, the CNO, Pacific Fleet Commander, Deputy Coast Guard Commandant for Operations, and the Assistant Commandant of the Marine Corps all spoke. If you missed the event live, you can watch all the keynote speakers and the panel discussions on the Naval Institute YouTube channel. Now let's get to our guests. Joining me today from Hawaii at Fort Shafter are General Charles Flynn, U.S. Army, the Commanding General, U.S. Army Forces Pacific, and Lieutenant Colonel Tim Devine, a strategy officer at U.S. Army Pacific. They are the authors of one of the American Sea Power Project articles in the February issue of Proceedings. It's titled, To Upgun Sea Power in the Indo-Pacific, You Need an Army. If you have the print issue of Proceedings, it starts on pages 38 and 39. General Flynn, Colonel Devine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate you having us today. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Glad to join you. I think you guys are our first ever Army officers on the show. Well, that's good. Well, hopefully we won't be the last. So we need to keep this uh, conversation going. It's uh, really important to the Joint Force. And uh, we're, we're, uh, we're honored to be here today to be able to go over some material and explain uh, a little bit more, going a little bit more depth about the article. And I'll, I'll note for our uh, listeners that, uh, sir, you're a, a graduate of the Naval War College at Newport, so kind of an honorary Navy guy, at least uh, to some extent. I am. I'm a native of uh, Newport. Uh, spent a lot of time in, uh, at the Naval base there. As you, as you mentioned, went to the War College. My, uh, my father was actually uh, drafted in the Second World War right out of De La Salle Academy in Newport. Um, my mother's a Rogers High School graduate. I'm, uh, I'm one of nine. And uh, my mother, actually, her brother, Frank, um, served in the Navy for 26 years and actually uh, uh, was a sub commander, but fought out in the Pacific in the Second World War because he was supposed to be in the class of 41. But of course, they all graduated in December of 40. So um, proud uh, Army Navy uh competitive stance there between uh, uh, across my family. Yes, sir. That's fantastic. So I want to just uh, start off with a, your article starts with a quote from uh, two of two authors, uh, Naval Institute press authors and also proceedings authors, Toshi Yashihara and Jim Holmes. You quote from their Naval Institute press book, Red Star Over the Pacific. And the quote is this, sea power is about more than fleets. Indeed, it is about more than navies. And you go on to write, quote, today as before, the Army has much to offer in terms of capability and capacity. So, General, let's start there. At a very high level, 
Describe some of the sea power capabilities of the U.S. Army today. Well, I guess, Bill, what I'd say is that the interdependencies of the joint force are so vital to our ability to be successful that we have to operate together at every echelon and with every capability that exists. So I often say that land power is joint power because we demonstrate through land power, the interdependencies in what I'd say all five domains, but also the human domain, which is so vital out here to understanding the region through the eyes of the people and the eyes of those people. Uh, like I say, often humans have this unique tendency to live on land. And so land forces provide a fingertip feel of actually what's happening uh, in the theater. Land power also, you know, from a historical context, it provides staying power. We provided that staying power out here in uh, the Second World War and other wars uh, to be able to create uh, operational endurance. How are we doing that today? We're building joint interior lines, as uh, outlined in the article. Uh, those interior lines have four foundational aspects. That's command and control. That's collection to see and sense and understand what's actually happening. That's protection from mobility, counter-mobility, survivability, to integrated air and missile defense, to medical protection, and then sustainment, the, the backbone that's gonna be required for logistics out here. Um, you know, the, there's a lot that has changed in the Indo-Pacific, but the geometry of this geography has not changed. And so those foundational capabilities are what the Army provides at scale and at echelon for the joint force as as and, and this is depicted through all the army support to other services and the executive agent authorities that we have within the department of defense which the sum total of that in the army is greater than all the other services put together so that's that staying power that the army provides to the joint force over uh, our history here and even today tim and even. Yeah, sir. I mean, you've mentioned the history bit uh, a couple times. So, uh, you know, personally, I find the history of the United States Army in this part of the world incredibly fascinating. Uh, and albeit uh, it's not as well known as perhaps the, the Navy or the Marine Corps history in the Indo-Pacific. Um, but I, like I said, I find it incredibly fascinating, not just because it tickles my own interests, but I think it's incredibly relevant, uh, the legacy of the American soldier in this part of the world today. So whether it's uh, the roots that we have in uh, coastal artillery as the United States began expanding bases, uh, really one of the first experiences in counterinsurgency warfare during in the Philippines at the turn of the century, the Siberian expedition with extreme cold weather, uh, and of course the four major wars that uh, General Flynn alluded to as well. The Philippine, or war in the Philippines, the Pacific War, uh, uh, Korea and Vietnam. You know, one little known fact too, I think is really interesting is that the army has more campaign streamers in the Indo-Pacific than all wars, contingency operations and expeditionary operations outside North America put together. So I think it's telling that for one, you know, it's a, a shame on us. We don't uh, quite understand our history as well in this part of the the globe, but it's incredibly important and relevant. And to the points General Flynn made, it's because as we've seen throughout our, our past, uh, we provide or the Army provides the depth and scale of capabilities that really uh, are the underpinnings to projecting and sustaining all forms of power, whether it be naval, air, or even land power. And today you can, of course, apply that into the new domains General Flynn began with.
Yeah, those are some great points, and I, I commend this article to our uh, readers, especially our Navy Marine Corps readers who, uh, if if you're anything like me, uh, there's a lot of stuff in this article that was kind of eye-opening, and, and I served in the Pacific in the uh, uh, at, at Indo-PACOM, when it was called PACOM, uh, from 20, 2008 to 2012. And, and, and even with that joint experience, I didn't have the sense of the Army support to other services that you both just touched on a little bit. Uh, I'll, I'll end the, the second question. I'll start with uh, Colonel Devine. Our readers and listeners are, are really well-versed in China's anti-access area denial or A2AD capabilities, as the U.S. tends to call them. Um, you write that China's arsenal is designed to defeat U.S. naval capabilities, but is not to des- not designed to find, fix, and finish mobile land forces. So, can you dig into that one a little bit? Explain, please. Yeah. Hey, Bill. Um, let me, let me take this one. I'm I'm his boss, so I'm just going to jump on it because uh, this is the this is actually a very important point. And one conceptually that I think is central to what we're describing. Okay, so while the air and maritime powers are a huge advantage for the United States, the very arsenal, the A2AD arsenal that the Chinese have designed is primarily designed to defeat our air and maritime advantages. And secondarily, secondarily, it's designed to degrade, deny, and disrupt our space and cyber advantages. However, it is not designed to find, fix, and finish distributed, mobile, lethal, non-lethal, fixed, semi-fixed, mesh-networked, distributed, reloadable land forces. And when I say land forces and land power, I'm talking about the Army, I'm talking about the Marine Corps, I'm talking about Special Operations Forces, and I'm talking about the sizable land forces that exist out here in the region. Japanese military, 65% of that military is army. Philippines, 70%. They have more divisions than the US Army does. Uh, and I could go, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia, you know, India. I won't go into the details of that, other than to say, like the security architecture that actually binds this region together is land power because those land power forces they protect their national sovereignty they protect their territorial integrity and they do it in the air littoral the maritime littorals and they're doing it from the land and the this land power network if you if you merely look at the map you see a lot of blue but the reality of it is there is an awful lot of key terrain out here that has to be controlled seized It has to be defended. And these armies are the instrument that these countries turn to to help them create that territorial defense. And so I think that that is really an important aspect of the regional militaries here. I freely admit that the naval power and the air power from the United States out here has to keep the global commons open for commerce, for international rules, that's air and sea. But the sovereign territory and the sovereign air and maritime littorals, often these countries turn to their army to defend those. And so they turn to us as the U.S. Army, and they want training. They want 
planning. They want concept development. They want to look at our capabilities. And we're seeing that because the region is absolutely thirsty for that kind of work between uh, the land power forces that exist out here and the strategically critical role that they play individually by country, but across the region as a network. Tim. Yeah, thanks, sir. Uh, and I'll add to, uh, you know, as I'm an Army strategist, so I can't help but throw in a bit of strategic theory. So, you know, the historian John Gooch talks about Mahan's view of sea power. He describes, in his words, as, quote, a series of interlocking factors. So, I, you know, I, I read a lot of history, as you probably could tell from answering my first question, but I'm also deep into to studying strategic theory. Um, so I'm, I'm fascinated, too, by uh, Mahan's view of the world and his particular views on sea power, because I think those inextric inextricable links that, um, you know, uh, John Gooch had alluded to between things like commerce, naval power, uh, key sea lines of communication and nodes, uh, I think it really is uh, and emphasizes how there's these inextricable links between land and sea, between the global commons and sovereignty, as General Flynn had mentioned, but also it showcases many of the links between the Army and the sea services. So again, going back to this idea of the joint interdependencies and a lot of the jointness that we are really, you know, hoping to uh, to encourage throughout uh, many of our efforts. So whether it's, you know, a vessel uh, seeking a port, you know, that port needs to be protected, supplied. Uh, we, and, you know, in the event of a, a wartime scenario, as General Flynn said, we have to seize hold of the defend those critical areas. And we saw that all throughout the Pacific War during the, the 1940s. So, and then the final point I'll make is, you know, if you look at what China has built with their A2AD arsenal, um, you could argue that it's really limited to, rather than denying freedom of operator, freedom of navigation, limited to more of a disrupting that, that type of capability during peacetime or what we would call competition. So, you know, kind of going back to the beginning of General Flynn's comments, that that arsenal is built to defeat our greatest strengths during a shooting war. But what it's not designed to do is to defeat land forces. And herein, I think, offers an asymmetric advantage to the joint force and to our multinational allies and partners. Thank you, sir. Uh, for our listeners, we're, we're having to mute and unmute uh, uh, here as we go back and forth. I'll, I'll have to ask this question because I know a lot of our of our, our listeners will, will chide me if I don't ask this question. But if the Chinese can target an aircraft carrier in the first island chain with a DF-21D, why could they not target land forces in the first island chain with a DF-21C? Or, or other, you know, cruise missiles and capabilities that they've built. Right. Well, they certainly can, but this is the point to being able to hide in the clutter. So, you know, our ability to disperse, uh, to distribute, to reload, to move, uh, to go from uh, restrictive terrain, whether that's on the surface in urban areas, to mask our location, to send... Uh, 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 signals that are deceptive in nature. Uh, oh, by the way, going underground really helps because that's a way of being able to protect us. So my point is that we are creating a dilemma, uh, uh, again, amidst the clutter that is very, very difficult for uh, those assets 
to target us and then to actually fix us, find and fix us. And, and so that is my point where um, the sea forces, other than the subsurface forces, they are on the terrestrial of the Earth's surface. They can be seen and they're pinging, so to speak, in the air and at sea. And so those assets are, have been designed to strike them. They've not been designed to fire into a foreign country, uh, which is a whole nother discussion about, you know, now third parties or more are involved in this, uh, in this, in this fight. Okay. All right. Uh, good points. Uh, so you both note in your article that in 2017, uh, then commander U.S. Pacific Command Admiral Harry Harris called on the U.S. Army to sink ships. So how's the Army responded to that challenge? What capabilities are you building? Yeah, great. Thanks for the question, Bill. So I, w- I was there. That was at uh, what we call Land Forces of the Pacific Conference that we hold out here in May uh, every year. And of course, at the time, uh, Admiral Harris was the PACOM commander. I was actually the deputy commanding general, U.S. Army Pacific. Um, let me let me answer it by describing, you know, the path that we've taken. First of all, what he said was sink ships, neutralize satellites, and hack and jam C4, uh, C5, ISR, and T. We we were already doing the hack and jam, and we were already on satellites, but we had not created the uh, sink ships capability. So. Uh, I'll, I'll just try to describe the path that we created to the multi-domain task force, which is an organizational redesign and part of our uh, transformation in the Army, and that and couple that to the development of deep sensing and long-range precision fires. So not long after that speech, uh, I left here and became the Army G357. We had a concept called multi-domain operations. It actually moved from multi-domain battle to multi-domain operations. As part of the uh, new operational concept, multi-domain concept at the top, multi-domain operations concept, we were establishing multi-domain task forces. And at the same time, we were, what I would say is bending metal through RDT&E on the weapons platforms that we were eventually going to field. So this is in the 1718 timeframe. Uh, around the 1920 uh, period, uh, then Secretary McCarthy, uh, we put an E, uh, an experimental uh, TO and E together of a unit at Joint Base Lewis McCord called, called the First Multi Domain Task Force. Today we have three in the Army. So there's one at Joint Base Lewis McCord, part of First Corps, and assigned to uh, U.S. Indo PACOM. There's the third MDTF here in Hawaii, and then we have a second MDTF that's in operation over in Europe. Um, but I think what's really important here is that the organizational design had come from concept development and experimentation starting really back in the 2012 timeframe. That organization. Uh, uh, evolved into what is today the multi-domain task force. That multi-domain task force was an was a organizational uh, experiment that was out in front of, as I said, the bent metal experiments of the deep sensing and then the long-range precision fires. And then I'm going to jump ahead to where we are today. We are going to deploy a mid-range capability into this theater 
that has an anti-ship capability, and we're going to deploy it this year in 2024. We just started bending metal just a few years ago. So that capability is here today, and we are going to continue to pursue uh, our HIMARS capability, which has a, uh, a PRISM Inc. 2 and a PRISM Inc. 4 with ranges at various distance to do the same thing. And I think everybody is well-versed in uh, the lethality and uh, the gains that are being made from the HIMARS weapon system. Of course, we, we will do that. And the Marine Corps has another effort underway with their uh, anti-ship missiles. Uh, but you can't uh, but realize the benefit of having a combination of multi-domain task forces to do the deep sensing, indications and warning, targeting support to the joint force, deep strike with mid-range capabilities, with high Mars prism, with hypersonic battery that is operational now and still going through the testing. Uh, but, you know, six years of learning and training. Now we have that capability in the region. Uh, and we are, in my view, are on a great path to be able to do sea control, sea denial from the land and being achieved as part of the joint force in support of our great joint partners and our multinational combined uh, capabilities out here in the land domain that can operate in space, cyber, sea, and air. I will mention, so, sir, uh, uh, the opening the opening picture in your article that we've got uh, the armies. We have a great picture of a. Uh, a battery, I guess it is, of the Army's new mobile mid-range capability system. And so that can launch Tomahawk anti-ship and land attack cruise missiles. That's right. That's right. That, and that asset is uh, is based at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. It is part of the first multi-domain task force. Um, and uh, they are certified and, and ready to go. Kevin, do you, you want to add anything on? Yes, sir. I'll just uh, quickly highlight, too. There's often a comparison of apples to apples with the MDTF and the Marine Littoral Regiment, or the MLR. And while I would say, uh, from our standpoint, it offers both uh, complementary and reinforcing effects, there are a lot of differences between the two types of formations. So as you know, part of the force design uh, that the Marine Corps has undertaken, calling out how the Marines are focused more towards supporting the fleet, the stand-in-force concept and so forth, uh, whereas the MDTF is more purpose-built and designed to support uh, all elements of the joint force. And in fact, um, one of the, the new features that the multi-domain task force has done last year, they set up an experiment during one of our exercises in the Philippines uh, by establishing what we called a combined information effects fusion cell. And so really all that experiment was designed to do was to pull in unclassified data from all open source uh, uh, or places and then fuse that information together with the, the Philippine partners and allow the armies to share that information data in real time with naval forces, with government officials. And so I think it's telling just one way that the army is kind of practicing its multi or putting into practice rather multi-domain operations. So whereas before the army was largely focused in traditional land operations, you know, the non-contiguous geography of this environment really demands the army look into all the different domains to understand how it can contribute to the greater uh, effort, if you will. Awesome. 
really good points. Um, and and uh, you make a lot of specific and implicit points, both here on the program, but also in your article about the joint nature of deterring or defeating what we call a Chinese joint island landing campaign. Uh, talk a little bit more about how the Army is integrating with the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Air Force within the new joint warfighting concept. So that that JWC, the joint warfighting concept, was mentioned by some of our speakers out at our West Conference two weeks ago. Um, can you talk about maybe what's going well and what are some of the big challenges there? Yeah, I'll, let me talk first about uh, joint training, because I think that that is uh, just absolutely essential to getting to your point about the warfighting concept. Um, so on joint training, what I would say, and, you know, I, I guess I have the luxury of being able to say that, you know, I've been out here for seven of the last 10 years, and um, our campaigning efforts out here are are much more joint and much more multinational. And, and that is a good that is a good thing for the joint force. It's also a good thing for the region and of course the forces within the region. Yeah, a couple of examples. Exercise Guru Shield in Indonesia was once an army to army exercise. It's now a joint multinational exercise with 14 nations and you know upwards of six to seven thousand uh, uh, folks involved in it, you know, Talisman Saber, that was once an army to army exercise is now this last year, 15 nations, 30,000 people, a CJTF. And I, I could go other examples. I just, I would just tell you that the, uh, the combined efforts of the components, uh, as a part of Indo-PACOM's campaign plan out here is there's far more joint, far more multinational and combined training going on. I'll make one other aspect, uh, one other plug here. So the Army has has created the first combat training center outside of Europe and the continental United States in 50 years. We have it here with a Hawaii campus and an Alaska campus. I was Tim and I were just in Alaska in high altitude, extreme cold weather, mountainous conditions, which look a lot like the region. And then, of course, here in the Hawaiian archipelago of eight islands, tropic jungle, and uh, obviously the archipelago conditions look a lot like the region. But maybe more importantly is JPMRC stands for Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center. We have a deployable version that we brought into Indonesia in 21 and 22 in a place called uh, Bataraja on the southern tip of Sumatra, right off of the uh, 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 Sunda Straits. And then, of course, uh, last year we brought it into Talisman Sabre, in, uh, in the northeast corner of Australia. And this year we're gonna bring it into Fort Magsaysay in the Philippines. So the point I'm making in the early part of this bill is that there's this thirst from the armies, this land power network that I'm, that I'm describing in the region that is hungry for their ability to conduct training. And they turn to their army brethren in the US Army because they know we have combat training centers and again, we've had one in Europe. We've had two in the continental United States. We now have one out here in uh, the Pacific. And it is part of, it's actually the Army's contribution to PIMTEC, which is the Pacific Multinational Test and Experimentation Capability at US Indo-PACOM, which has long been on their IPA list since uh, I believe Admiral Locklear. Um, other challenges, of course, resources are always a challenge. Uh, the sum is greater than the parts. So, you know, that's why the value of the joint force coming together to do this training 
is so important. But I will tell you at the end of the day, that joint and multinational training, it enhances our operational reach. It gives us strategic depth and it allows us survivability moves inside the region that all of our forces are going to need. And, uh, and, and so that's the value of what we're doing out here by way of joint training. If I could come to the concepts for just a second. Um, you know, from EABO to DMO on the Navy and the Marine Corps side to ACE in the Air Force to multi-domain operations in the Army, I am excited to see the joint warfighting concept, you know, sort of galvanizing and bringing those concepts together as best we can. I think the services have each done a good job with their concepts. I would argue that some are at different levels of understanding outside of their own service. So what I see the value in the joint warfighting concept is bringing all those service concepts together and then testing them in this environment and under the conditions that exist out in the Indo-PACOM area of responsibility. And so I, I'm excited that the joint force can get around the idea of bringing our service concepts together and taking the best of those parts and creating a, uh, a better or a, uh, a viable joint warfighting concept. And sir, if I may just underscore uh, one of the points you're, you're emphasizing here too, is that really this need for unified action and the underlying need for jointness. And so the joint warfighting concept, uh, again, brings all these things together, but to put it into practice, uh, the Joint Pacific Multinational Readiness Center that General Flynn mentioned, I think it's an opportunity to actually find out where a lot of these friction points may, may exist between all of these different ideas. So for instance, the Air Force uh, was able to rehearse for the very first time their Agile Combat Employment concept during one of our previous rotations. And so there was a lot of learning that occurred, but you know the insights that were, were shared across the multiple uh, components was I think perhaps the most important. So, you know, the Air Force's concept, the Navy's concept, and even the Marines and the Army as well, none of these are existing in isolation. We all have to understand the interdependencies, the limitations, um, so that way we can get a better appreciation for the requirements, you know, back to the Army service or support to other services. But the Army uh, uh, depends on the other services for things as well. So again, this underlying need for jointness, I think, is incredibly important. And then you apply that to the, the environment that we find ourselves in here every day. The, the Indo-Pacific operational environment, I would argue, is the most complex in the world. The, the terrain is the most demanding. I mean, you read any story from a Pacific War veteran who will tell you uh, that the, the types of conditions that they were confronted with were extremely exacting. And so, you know, being able to train in the environment and then operate under the conditions uh, is incredibly important, I think, to, to tease out these warfighting concepts into reality. Hey, Bill, can I, I, I'm going to stay on this just a second because I think it's really important. Um, you know, what Tim and I were describing were service concepts coming together with the joint warfighting concept. But let me let me let me make a point about the functional combatant commanders and the role that they play in the development of these concepts. And I'll use Transcom as a really good example. Um, when you move the army because we're the one service without transportation, okay? So when you move the army, you are exercising 
not just transcom, but you're exercising the defense industrial base. You're also exercising the diplomatic efforts that have to work inside of each one of these countries. Let me go back to the joint force for a minute. So you move the army, you're going to activate Army Material Command, Air Mobility Command, SDDC, the Surface Distribution Command, Joint Munitions Command, Contracting Command. These are not insignificant muscles of the Department of Defense Functional Command under TRANSCOM. And so when you have to disaggregate forces and then re-aggregate them in a foreign country and then re-aggregate them at airfields and ports and then move them out to a tactical assembly area, whether that's a Patriot missile system, uh, a hospital, um, engineers or infantry and fires units, that is not easy. Again, back to the geography of this geometry. Um, and or the, ge geometry. The, the geometry of this geography. You, the, the reality of it is when you move large land forces out here, you exercise all of that. And that's where those fine points of the joint warfighting concept are going to be worked out out here in the Pacific, which is, again, you know, the most harshest of conditions and the greatest distance between our uh, our base of support or our strategic support area in the continental United States, and then the operational support areas that we rely on so much from our allies and partners. I, I just got to add two things to the list of uh, of the the mobility capabilities that you were, were mentioning there, sir. Military Sea Lift Command and Strategic Sea Lift, really key to all of that as well. Yeah, um, we're running a little bit short on time, so I just want to get to uh, to uh, one of the other questions here. Um, at the end, uh, and this echoed with uh, with uh, some of our um, readers and listeners, because uh, a, a couple of years ago, we had a winning essay in our Marine Corps essay contest. It was titled, What Does the Navy Want from the Marine Corps? And in your essay, you wrote, um, quote, the sea services should consider what they require now from the Army to reduce vulnerabilities in the event of transition from competition to crisis or conflict. So what are you hearing from your colleagues at uh, PAC Fleet and um, Marine Forces Pacific? Well, so a couple things. I mean, I, I mentioned it earlier. I think that, you know, there are these foundational capabilities that only the Army provides uh, at Echelon that give depth and operational reach and staying power to the joint force. Uh, again, back to Army support to other services and then the executive uh, uh, authorities, executive agencies that the, the Army provides to the joint force. Things like Common user land transportation, common user logistics, land-based integrated air and missile defense, distribution operations, inland transportation, engineering, land-based communication, detainee operations, I could go on and on. The fact of the matter is the muscle of the joint force for operational endurance and staying power comes from the Army. And therefore, it's so important for the joint force to make sure that those are identified when we're training out in the region, exercising in the region, rehearsing in the region, and then also when we're doing uh, planning and tabletop exercises and, and, and CPXs and war games. And oftentimes, these capabilities are going to be the things that trip us up if we don't think our way through them uh, in the beginning and before a crisis or a conflict happens. 
I'll tell a story about like the 16, 17 timeframe when I was out here, you know, there was a problem with Korea at the time. And we, we army moved in about 150 days. We moved 90 days of ammunition to Japan and Korea. And then we put a fad battery into a golf course in Korea. And that demonstration of sustainment and logistics and commitment on the part of the United States took all of the, the stress and the tension out of that particular incident. So again, this is another, what I would call is, that is a flexible deterrent operation. That is a flexible response operation because it is in fact demonstrating the commitment of the United States and the US military into a situation that, they, that we were trying to defuse. Um, the last thing I'd say is, again, I'm back to kind of this land power network because I think the another asymmetrical advantage that we provide is persistent partnership. We're on the ground. As I mentioned, we get a fingertip feel of what's actually happening because we're traveling on the roads. We're out in the jungles. We're out in the communities. We're doing exercise-related construction. We're engaging with the people. We're engaging with local leaders. Uh, and of course, we're, we're together with the various armies from the region on the ground for extended periods of time. We do that uh, uh, you know, with the invitation and with the consent of the countries that we're operating uh, in. Um, and that interoperability, that human, technical, and procedural interoperability that occurs uh, is really a common language that we create on the ground with our uh, allies and partners in the region. So that land power network that exists out here, Bill, is actually a great counterweight uh, to the insidious, irresponsible, and incremental behavior that the Chinese have been on out in this region. And I think that that advantage, uh, that again, that asymmetrical advantage that we generate from the regional armies and the land power network is so vital to the safety and security of the region. And sir, I'll add one final thought too is, you know, whereas I think we issue somewhat of a call to action for the other services to, to learn about the capabilities and ask what we provide, but the same is true for us, you know, where uh, I'll speak for myself here is that, you know, I spent the most of my career early on during the counterinsurgencies in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan focusing on, you know, that particular type of warfare, uh, but coming out to the Pacific was a brand new experience for me. And so, you know, I, I had a steep learning curve to better understand the role of the Navy and Marine Corps, how the services interoperate. Um, you know, even like I mentioned early on the history of the army in this theater, I was just blown away by how much of a contribution, you know, 1.8 million soldiers during World War II, the third largest force ever constituted by the United States. You know, 21 combat divisions in total in this theater. I, I'm, I'm astounded by a lot of these statistics, but, you know, learning about some of the, the key contributions that Army forces have made, and not just to, to say that, to, to brag about, you know, the Army, but to really underscore this point that all of the pieces of the joint force play critical roles. And, you know, the Army is a critical component to the joint force. And so the onus is on us, too, to be proactive so it's a call to action for the Army as well to go out and seek and identify where we need to assist, how uh, the Army's capabilities need to be brought to bear, and where we perhaps even need to change our ways of doing business to accommodate uh, other services concepts as an example we discussed earlier. Those are great points. Uh, we're about out of time, so I just want to give uh, 
one last opportunity for, to fire any saved rounds. Well, Bill, first of all, thanks for uh, allowing us an opportunity to share our thoughts on this. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll kind of come back to, um, you know, this, this idea of uh, the interdependencies of the joint force um, and the value of being able to tie all those together and the jointness that can be created by operating out here. Um, I think that uh, there's, there's obviously a lot of work that we have uh, in front of us, um, but the sense of urgency that the force has out here um, is, is noticed. It's noticed um, in the region and it's noticed by our allies and partners. And so I guess I would, uh, I would summarize it by saying um, we have a lot of work ahead of us as a joint force uh, and as a, as a multinational enabled joint force and that the, uh, the value of the land power network out here is, uh, is strong and it gives the United States an asymmetrical advantage that we need to uh, capitalize on. So thanks for the opportunity to spend a few moments with you and, uh, and the team at Proceedings. All right. Well, sir, thank you very much. And uh, my guests today have been Army General Charles Flynn and Lieutenant Colonel Tim Devine. Their article in the February Proceedings is titled, To Upgun Sea Power in the Indo-Pacific, You Need an Army. Uh, General Colonel, thanks for writing for Proceedings and for being on the show. Thank you very much, Bill. Appreciate yeah, thanks, it. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate you having us on. All right. Today's show is brought to you by Booz Allen. Accelerate today's missions with tomorrow's technologies as the leader in providing AI solutions to the federal government and one of the world's largest cybersecurity providers. Booz Allen advances game-changing capabilities rapidly, ethically, and securely. Learn more at boozallen.com defense. And until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.